Welcome to Pop Pantheon, the podcast where we completely overanalyze all of your favorite pop stars and then rank them in the official Pop Pantheon. This is your host, DJ Louis XIV, and this, of course, is part three of our four-part series on the Queen Bee herself, Beyonce. But before we get to that, a few housekeeping tasks that I will keep very short. The first is, the next Gorgeous Gorgeous, my queer pop party that I DJ in downtown Los Angeles, is happening on August 12th. That's a Friday at Resident. This is an indoor-outdoor venue, so if you like to hang out outside instead of coming inside, you can still do that. It's so much fun. It's me playing pop hits all night. You guys have heard me talk about this a billion times. So I'd love to see you there. Please come introduce yourself to me if you do come. Tickets are cheap. The link to buy them is in the show notes of this episode, and I will also post them conveniently for this transition on our social media channels, which are Pop Pantheon Pod on Instagram and DJ L-O-U-I-E-X-I-V on both Instagram and Twitter. So follow at those locations for info on Gorgeous Gorgeous, which is happening again on Friday, August 12th. And of course, just for other fun Pop Pantheon related stuff, including games and clues and gossip and fun interactive things. So look forward to seeing you guys at Gorgeous Gorgeous and also on social media. Please continue to rate and review Pop Pantheon on Apple Podcasts and wherever else you guys listen to podcasts. Really helps the show. I will get back to reading some of my favorite reviews of which there are some true bangers lately on next week's episode when we have finished getting through these meaty installments on the Queen. But I really appreciate everybody who's leaving ratings and reviews. And finally, of course, get in our Discord channel, which continues to be popping. And I really actually think you're going to want to be in there this Thursday evening when Renaissance drops. It's just been a slowly building tsunami of excitement in there. And I think it's going to be the place to be for pop fans the night this record comes out. So get in that Discord channel. Be there with us on Thursday night. I will definitely be there. The record drops at midnight Eastern, 9 p.m. Pacific. So we're all going to be in there, I'm sure, having live reaction meltdowns to the album. So you don't want to miss that. Link to that is in the show notes of the episode and also will be on social media. So I want to get into this week's episode, as I mentioned this is the third installment of our Beyonce series that is covering Beyonce, the self-titled visual album through Black is King. My guest is going to blow your freaking mind. I can promise you that. It's one of the most profound episodes of the show that we have put together so far. I cannot wait for you to hear it. So without further ado, here is part three of Pop Pantheon, Beyonce. <laughs> What separates a tier one pop star from the rest of the pop pantheon? This is obviously a demarcation I've spent quite a lot of time processing on this podcast. To be in tier one, there seems to be some basic ideas that hold mostly true. You probably need to be part of the fabric of pop culture across many decades, permeating the ether not just through changing musical tides, but through different socio-political eras, and within all of those contexts, maintain some sort of central role in the pop conversation. You're likely an artist who has presented in numerous distinct iterations to the general public over your career, and yet has been able to hold on to some kernel of truth about your artistry and persona through all of it, an essence that consistently means something utterly crucial to the pop-consuming public. And look, you're probably on a first-name basis with most of the world, but I think the main thing that separates Tier 1 from any lower tier in the pop pantheon is that, while pop music and pop performance may always be your primary trade and medium, you have made your currency about something greater than just that. 
You haven't just affected radio trends or influenced future pop stars or received rapturous critical acclaim or made a handful of multi-platinum albums or won a bunch of Grammys or even toured stadiums. You have defined or spoken to something larger about our culture, society, and even about humanity, such that your work and legacy feels bigger than the already great sum of its parts. Beyonce, especially in the last 10 years of her career, has defined this missive, turning her output, herself, and what the mere mention of her name means into something that's not just about being one of the greatest pop stars of all time, which she certainly is, but it's something grander still. Beyonce has made herself a true American icon. Following her beloved, if slightly underperforming, fourth album, Four, in 2011, and her celebrated career-spanning halftime performance at the Super Bowl in 2013, Beyonce already ranked among the greatest pop stars and performers of her generation. But it felt as though it may have been the end of something. She'd been in the game for over 15 years, was entering her mid-30s, and an entire new younger generation of pop figures, all of whom had pulled numerous pages from her playbook, had taken center stage at radio, on the charts, and in the increasingly important social media landscape. On top of that, there appeared to be no less than dead silence from Bee herself on what was next for her, save for a strange leaked demo here or an errant and largely erroneous self-made documentary there. That all changed just before midnight on December 13th, 2013, when, with a single Instagram caption that read simply, Surprise, Beyonce changed not only the trajectory of her entire career and legacy, but the way that the music industry has functioned since. That Instagram signaled, with absolutely no advance notice, the arrival of Beyonce's fifth studio album, her self-titled 16-track magnum opus, each song complete with its own bespoke music video, and with it all, an entirely new phase in Beyonce's pop footprint. The mere commercial feat of this, having made and recorded this music and more than a dozen music videos in complete secrecy as one of the most famous people on earth, and then dropping them like a sudden thunderous earthquake that reverberated across the pop universe would have been enough to cement this album in history. But ultimately, and more importantly, the content of this record represented a radical shift in who Beyonce was as an artist. The music was personal in a way we'd never seen from her before, finding her in thorough investigations into her multitudes as a woman, wife, mother, sexual being, activist, feminist, billionaire, and black woman. Themes she touched on throughout her discography, but never with this much pointed self-interrogation, clarity of mind and purpose, profundity, personal revelation, and artistic ease. She'd recruited a murderer's row of collaborators, from Timberland and Pharrell, to Justin Timberlake, Carolyn Polachek, Sia and the Dream, Ryan Tedder, Drake, Miguel, Frank Ocean, and of course, her husband Jay-Z, and corralled them all into her most cohesive and singular work to date. An electro R&B fantasia that managed to integrate a myriad of largely black musical traditions like doo-wop, trip-hop, and trap without losing its cohesive aesthetic identity. And then, of course, the videos were a feat of their own, showcasing an attention to visual detail and storytelling on par with the great filmmakers of her day, and each of which managed to deepen and enrich the musical material on which they were based. As the world stopped to engage with Beyonce, all at once, in a way the diffuse nature of the internet had largely obliterated in the previous decade, Beyonce had, with just one 
on Instagram cemented her status as one of the greatest pop artists in the history of the genre. There really is BB before Beyonce the visual album and AB after Beyonce the visual album, as far as major pop releases go at least. The surprise approach and addition of visual elements has since become the go-to rollout for major pop stars since, although very few have managed to come close to her near-perfect execution of the concept. The record was also a commercial blockbuster, selling over half a million copies in just its first three days and becoming one of the biggest selling albums of both 2013 and 2014, all in spite of having no real conventional hit radio singles, and it was also nominated for six Grammy Awards, winning three. Moreover, it made Beyonce, as she moved towards the end of her second decade in the spotlight, not just a relevant star, but perhaps the central pop figure of the day. A feat that's exceedingly rare in this phase of a pop star's life and career, but essential to top-tier placement in the pantheon. But of course, Beyonce wasn't done refining the concept she gestated with this project. For her next trick, following the release of her trap activist banger and music video Formation, along with her powerfully confrontational performance of the song, adorned in Black Panther garb at the 2016 Super Bowl, Beyonce took both the revelatory personal exploration and the audio-visual concept of the self-titled record to near operatic heights with her sixth project, 2016's landmark release, Lemonade. Here, with just one week notice, Beyonce deepened her gaze on herself and more specifically on her marriage to Jay-Z as a means of redefining the personal as political, using her story to tell a much broader, revolutionary, and profound narrative of American history. Largely a concept album about infidelity that came complete with a continuous hour-long film, Lemonade unfurled not only Beyonce's experiences with adultery over the course of her then 15-year relationship, but forcefully linked that story back to intergenerational trauma within her family, the brutal history of racism in America, and to the wider chronicles of the Black diaspora. It did so in its broad-ranging musical choices, which reclaimed reggae, trap, rock and roll, country, soul music, and R&B, musical genres, many of which find their origins, at least in part, with Black women. It did so in the lyrics, Beyonce's most stark, raw, disruptive, and stirring to date, which landed like an unfettered, violent gut punch from pop's most well-mannered classicist. And it did so in the striking, incisive visuals, which took place largely in post-Hurricane Katrina New Orleans, from abandoned plantations to the Superdome, a landscape rich in both the long history of American slavery and Jim Crow, and the site where, in our recent past, structural inequality and outright racist contempt found large populations of Black Americans left behind by their country in the face of natural disaster. Lemonade is an artistic feat because of how miraculously it works on numerous levels. It is at once a deeply troubling and revealing look at one woman's story and a mirror back to our own broken culture, while also somehow finding healing, redemption, and hope in the midst of brutality and pain. And yet in tandem, it's simply a great pop record, which showcased Beyonce's ever-widening vocal abilities and songcraft, providing anthems that somehow functioned in the context of this deeply meaningful composition as incredibly inventive and catchy pop songs and even sometimes as club bangers. For all these reasons, Lemonade is, with good reason, not only considered the height of Beyonce's artistic output, but also one of the greatest works of art of the 21st century.
since Lemonade, Beyonce has taken what could be considered a much-deserved career victory lap. In 2018, she became the first black woman to ever headline Coachella in a performance that drew on the marching band aesthetics of historically black colleges and universities, ran the gamut of her entire career in discography, including a surprise appearance by Destiny's Child, was released as the hit concert film Homecoming the following year, and is widely considered to be one of the greatest live shows in the history of pop music. She dropped a much-anticipated joint album with her husband Jay-Z, Everything Is Love, which found the couple making nice and celebrating being filthy rich after the emotional atom bomb of Lemonade. And in tandem with her starring role in Disney's remake of The Lion King, she released The Gift, a companion album, and later the basis of the visual project Black is King, an extravagant audio and visual celebration of African musical traditions and aesthetics. She also dropped her new single, Break My Soul, the lead-off to her seventh studio album, Renaissance, which will be released later this week. Beyonce is one of the best-selling musical artists in history, having moved over 120 million records worldwide. She is the first solo artist to have her first six consecutive records hit number one on the Billboard 200. She's had seven number one singles on the Hot 100 and 20 top tens. She is the most awarded female artist in pop history, having won 28 Grammy Awards, 26 MTV VMAs, including the Michael Jackson Video Vanguard Award, 24 NAACP Image Awards, and 21 BET Awards, each of which are the most won by any solo singer in history. Beyonce is also widely cited by critics, her fellow artists, and pretty much everyone else who has ever had the pleasure of experiencing her music performance and career as the most important and influential pop figure of the 21st century. Here with me on the podcast to talk about this incredibly meaningful, profound, deep, and moving phase in the career of Beyonce is Yale professor of African-American studies and the author of Liner Notes for the Revolution, Dr. Daphne Brooks. Okay, so I am here with Dr. Daphne Brooks, who is a professor at Yale of African-American studies and author of the incredible Liner Notes for the Revolution. Dr. Brooks, welcome to Pop Pantheon. Louie, it is a pleasure and an honor. It's Beyonce season again. Hallelujah. I can't believe it. It's been a drought, a love drought, as Beyonce a might love say. Dr- <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> it really has. I mean, she's always been with us and doing her thing with the babies. She certainly takes her time for good reason, I think. Absolutely. Absolutely. (laughs) I'm so thrilled and honored to have you here. Would it be safe to say you are perhaps the preeminent (laughs) academic scholar on Beyonce? Is that fair? I will say very in brief about my academic history with Beyonce. I believe I published one of the earliest scholarly essays on (laughs) Beyonce. And it was in part about Beyonce and also about Mary J. Blige and about Hurricane Katrina. Yeah called All That You Can't Leave Behind. Mm -hmm. But in the decade plus since then, Beyonce studies has really emerged in the academy as a serious and robust and rigorous line of inquiry. And I'm so pleased and honored to be a part of that. Well, she certainly provides plenty of fodder for critical discussion, I think, more so than maybe any pop star in history, or certainly one of the most of any pop star in history. I actually pulled out a quote from your book, Liner Notes for the Revolution, where you describe her as 
our sonic archivist, mm. the one who took banana dances to the beat of Josephine, the one who does it proud Mary style like Electric Tina, the one who drops the stank funk like Betty in a spy movie send up, the one who gives good glam as the Supreme Lady D, and the one who is our ride or die chick Etta at Chess Records. Do you see Beyonce as the culmination of some sort of black pop star or black female pop star? Mm, right, like rising out of the chrysalis. Of mm -hmm. the, yes, what I mean by that is that as an archivist and an archive, she really is one of the first musicians who, standing on the shoulders of the giants before her, was able to pull all of that history into a multimedia repertoire mm. and to lay claim to it, to honor it, and to bring it back to us, right? Mm. So to revivify it through mm. her own visionary and virtuosic performance strategies. I completely agree. I'm touched by both the way that throughout her entire career as I've revisited it, she has positioned herself in the lineage and history of Black art forms, of particularly Black females in pop music. I mean, starting from Destiny's Child, but certainly sampling Donna Summer on Naughty Girl mm -hmm. and her allusions to funk on Dangerously in Love yes. and B-Day yes. and to Prince on Four. And yes. she has always, I think, done an impeccable job at positioning herself as she wants to be seen and she wants to be seen as one of these great figures in mm -hmm. American art and mm -hmm. in African-American art in particular. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's only been refined and deepened through the period of work that we're about to start talking about. Mm -hmm. But you know, one thing that was also incredibly fascinating to me and is something we've been tracking throughout this series, but I had to bring it up again with you because I need your take on it. Apologies to listeners if you've heard this before, but the way that she's mined similar themes with, as I mentioned, sort of deepening abilities and capacities as an artist, but she has always been particularly fascinated by ecstatic monogamous love mm. as one element mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and then sort of the flip side or darker side of that, which is gender disparities Mm -hmm. her desire to both exist in a conventional heteronormative gender dynamic, which uh -huh. she returns to quite a bit, especially yes. in the work prior to this, but also to flip them and also to position mm -hmm. herself as an equal partner. I'm yes. always intrigued by her dynamic capability to operate in both of mm -hmm. those roles as like the feminist, yes. but also a very traditional, almost conservative yes. woman on some level. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And then finally, which I think is really relevant to our current conversation, might help us get into it a little bit with infidelity because mm -hmm. since Say My Name in 1998, mm -hmm. Beyonce mm -hmm. has been discussing infidelity in particular, what mm -hmm. lies and dishonesty in relationship mm -hmm. can wreak in a monogamous relationship yes. and in her relationship with men in general. Mm -hmm. And I was so moved in particular watching Lemonade this last time because mm -hmm. if you think about Beyonce's entire career as one big quest to figure out why men wrong her, which I think mm -hmm. is one thing that she does continue to come back to quite a bit. Yes. I feel like Lemonade, in watching it this time, because of how she'd grown as an artist and because of how she deepened her capacities, kind of like gave her an answer mm. to the question that she had asked for her entire career. Yes. Say My Name 
to me, myself, and I, to all of B-Day, to I Care and Jealous mm. on the self-titled mm-hmm. album. I mean, it's just yes. something that she has wondered about. And by diving into the history of America, she yes. was able to answer that question for herself. Absolutely. And I was so moved by that in this Absolutely, absolutely. Because part of what you're naming, Louis, is the way in which Beyonce is so deeply rooted in the century plus blues women's tradition of Mm. being able to bear witness to intimate violence and intimate devastation and heartbreak, right? This is the DNA of popular music culture, modern popular music culture. What Lemonade becomes is a way in which to examine the broader context in which we can finally answer that question, Mm. not just why are we broken, but how are we broken? And the multiple ways in which she answers that question are so deeply granular at the level of the social and the historical and the political. And we get that through the visuals, but also through the sonic palette of Lemonade Mm -hmm. and lyrically as well. I mean, it is truly one of the greatest album masterpieces in popular music culture. It absolutely is. For all of those reasons, this hadn't been done before. It's astonishing. When I watched it this time and when I watched Black is King and I watched the visual album in preparing for this, I was like, how does she do this? Like, I need to understand, like, how does one person have the capacity to like envision right. this and then execute it this yes. well. Like, yes. I mean, is- and she does have a team, which I really want to lean but. into. Right. Of course, yeah. but right. Yeah. No, I want to say that really lovingly because yeah. collaboration is so central to the black radical music tradition. You know, if we think about jazz and improvisation mm. and ensembles, mm-hmm. there's something about the West and about patriarchy that really emphasizes the individual, the solo auteur. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think that's been one of the many reasons why there's been a bias against Beyonce and awards categories, which we could get into. Yes, sure. At the end of the day, this is, you know, a sister who comes to the table with a boatload of ideas and ways of breaking convention while also honoring tradition at the same Mm. time. It's extraordinary. So in terms of tradition, one question that I want to kind of get into this conversation with you about this era of her career is one thing that this podcast tends to stumble upon as we assess pop stars' careers. And let me tell you, Dr. Brooks, usually we're covering their careers in one 90-minute episode, not four. So, <laughs> okay. this, so you know, this is a unique opportunity. I so I mm-hmm. often notice that particularly for females, and I think particularly for women of color, because obviously they bear the brunt of a lot of our cultural biases in the most extreme possible way, when pop stars get into their early to mid-30s, especially when they've been around since they were teenagers, the public largely loses it interest in them. And most pop stars don't open that door. Kind of what separates, frankly, the greats from the kind of like people of the moment is that they have some magical ability to open up that period of their life and career and remain interesting to us. And really only the best of the best have been able to do that. Mm -hmm. Diana Ross did it. Mm -hmm. Tina Turner did it. Janet Jackson did it until she got her situation, you know, that kind of Mm -hmm. as a whole other story. So in your mind, like how have those stars, particularly those black Mm -hmm. females, figured out how to re-engage audiences in that era of their career? Like, what have they had to do in order to achieve that? 
Yeah, no, thank you for that question, Louis. It's a really important one. And when we think about the terms regarding successful pop longevity, yeah. I would want to also have us think about how much those terms have changed drastically over the past 50 years mm. or so. Mm-hmm. And a number of the changes are bound up of course, with the transformations in the recording industry, as well as the ever-evolving media landscape. And I always like to think about Aretha. We know, of course, Mm. right, that following her historic breakthrough on Atlantic Records in the late 60s, her equally historic run as a back-to-back-to-back Grammy winner in the soul category through the early 70s, that Aretha went through this period of reassessing her sound, her image, the kinds of projects that were artistically resonant with her ultimate Mm -hmm. vision and goals as a musician. And she famously navigates this, let's call it a quieter period as an artist, (laughs) as the 70s were closing out. Before her return to the charts in the early to mid-80s as both a solo artist, she has these hit duets with pop stars who adored her, Andy Lennox, Mm -hmm. George Michael, white British people (laughs) who weren't afraid to embrace black female genius. Right. One could argue that the multifaceted, multimedia dimensions of pop superstardom in the MTV era gave birth to these new pathways towards sustainability for artists to disrupt the predictability of, quote unquote, aging out of their core demographic, Mm -hmm. which is a grotesque formulation altogether. It's the reality of the world. It's the reality, right? right? (laughs) So in some of the ways, I'm thinking about how 1970s, early 1980s icons like Solo Diana, who were just referenced. Mm-hmm. Even an iconoclast like Grace Jones mm. are kind of these examples of perhaps some of the last women pop musicians who built international stardom before MTV and then rode that stardom into their mid to late 30s onward. Ross, more so than the great Grace yes. Jones, who right. was defiantly alternative, right? Sure. Yeah. But MTV changes all of that, right? Yeah. So the rise of Madonna and Janet, mm-hmm. as well as the dazzling return of Tina Turner on her mm-hmm. own terms in the early 80s, meant that younger artists like Madonna and Janet and older artists like the great Tina, who she's just a bit north of 40, so that's horrifying. She was thought of as aged but out. But it is unique to have your totally basically unique. your signature solo album happen. Totally, totally, totally in every way, right? So all of these artists were able to cultivate new forms of intimacy with their Mm. fans through music video ubiquity Mm. and spectacular visual aesthetics that were packaged in, of course, the form of the music video, as well as being able to kind of extend, again, a formulation I hate, but branding to accompany their music. So Janet, Madonna, Tina all changed the game in this regard. But it's also worth noting that with regards to Janet and Madonna in particular, (laughs) (laughs) I'm going to... 
Each, you know, each of these artists utilize the video platform mm. to preserve and reaffirm their youthful aesthetics, mm. their forever current style and fashion statements, their eroticized edginess, mm. heavy quote marks, right? Mm -hmm. They're perpetually riveting aesthetic and innovative choreography, especially in the case of Janet, right? Mm -hmm. So they reinvented the landscape of women's pop iconicity in the late 20th century. And MTV was really kind of the gateway for that. That's so interesting because I'm fascinated by the dichotomy that you're pointing out, which is sort of like reaffirming their youthfulness or their relevance. Like I'm thinking about Janet in the All For You video, you know, right, right, super right, sexy. Right. She looks yes. incredible. Yes. It's a very youthful sounding song. But yes. I'm also thinking about The Velvet Rope and Ray of Light mm. in the late 90s, yes. both released mm -hmm. when I think Madonna was in her late 30s when Ray of Light came out and right. Janet was maybe in her early to mid 30s when The Velvet Rope came out, yep. were both, in contrast to that, deepening intimate texts mm -hmm. on their personal Definitely. lives that neither of them had really explored before. Definitely. And Absolutely. revealed yeah. layers to their mm -hmm. pop star persona mm -hmm. that were mm -hmm. greater than we'd ever seen and also expanded both of their artistic capacities, which I think is relevant to our conversation about Beyonce. Both of those records exposed sides and depths to those women's artistry that we had not yet seen. Yes. And I think their ability to effectively pull that off while still making fun pop music while still making Together Again or Ray of Light or whatever the great big banger singles are right. from this record and make incredible music videos, yes. etc., is a contrast that if you can execute it well, I do think is kind of, if we could come up with a formula for cracking this mm -hmm. code, is the formula. It's like, <laughs> how do you stay who you were, who people fell in love with for the first time, right. but also give them something more, something deeper, something expansive that keeps them interested? It's true, Louis. I love that you brought up those two albums. Both are my favorites by each of those artists. I have lots of different feelings Likewise. about Madonna. But, um, <laughs> I can tell and, by your and, facial yeah. expression. I know, I know. I, oh. <laughs> but I do really love that album. And Velvet Rope, I absolutely adore. The thing that I think about as an old Gen Xer is how yeah. Velvet Rope mixed response to it at the right. level of fandom, critically right. celebrated. Mm -hmm. There was some sexual experimentation on that album mm -hmm. that people weren't quite ready for in the mm -hmm. late 90s. There's a way in which both of those records, if we think about them together, Madonna kind of leaning into motherhood yes. in a way that mm. submitted to, on her own terms, levels of social convention. It's just fascinating to think about the contrasting ways that the two records were received by fans and to think about Beyonce pushing off from the scaffolding of those two albums and being able to navigate some of the perils of social convention yes. in really brilliant ways. Learning from yes. them, I think. Yeah. No one is a better student of pop history than Beyonce is, as you pointed yes. out. So just to kind of lay out where we are in the series, so Beyonce is released for in 2011, which I sort of see as 
a transitional record for her Definitely. where she yeah. had left behind the pursuit of conventional pop stardom and more specifically left behind the pursuit of hit singles. I sort of see Run the World as her <laughs> last attempt until yes. Break My Soul at a solo hit radio yes, song. Yes, yes, yes. She essentially decided that she wanted to pursue something greater than that. And four was her first attempt at that. And I think at the mm -hmm. time, almost similarly to Velvet Rope, I think was kind of a divisive album. I think Definitely. it's grown in stature over time. Yes. It's one of my personal favorites. Me too. Taste, taste. <laughs> but yeah, I think that at the time, taste. a lot of the singles underperformed. It right. was sort of seen as the first crack in her commercial veneer at that point. Yes. So I just remember feeling at that time that Beyonce was maybe heading into legacy artist territory. Because that album is such wow. just sort of like a stately, beautiful representation of her voice. And it yes. deals with a lot of classic sounds. I guess right. Countdown aside, it's not a particularly innovative Sonic record. It's right. much more of a throwback album. And That's so true. I could have seen Beyonce very happily performing in arenas for the rest of her life and doing covers and doing adult yes. contemporary or making Adele kind of sounding albums yeah. or whatever it was. Yeah. And I remember yeah, exactly what you said. So... So basically, throughout 2011, 2012, what we're getting from Beyonce essentially is obviously we get this documentary she films and releases about herself called Life is But a Dream, which yes. I do not want to spend too much time on. It is the representation of the bad side of Beyonce's control freakness, which is that she made a documentary about herself and who could possibly make an actually compelling interrogative documentary about right. oneself, especially someone who has as tight control over their public right. image as this right. person does. I always battle with how much do I reveal about myself? How do I stay current? How do I stay soulful? I felt like I had been so commercially successful. It wasn't enough. It's something really stressful about having to keep up with that. You can't express yourself. You can't grow. It is the battle of my life. So I set a goal, and my goal was independence. And who hadn't yet, as she does in the work we're going to talk about, mm -hmm. figured out how to mine herself and reveal herself in ways that I don't think she was ready for. I don't think she was there. Yes. But I yes. remember there being sort of a ton of buzz in the fandom, in <sighs> online communities about kind of what was coming next. It was very right. secretive. Bow mm -hmm. down leaked at some point during That's this right. period. I've been out. I've been out. I've been out. Tell me who's going to take me out. Take me out. Take me out. And then, most importantly, in 2013, she headlined the Super Bowl, and it felt, again, and I say this kind of building off of what I was saying earlier, it felt like a career capstone in a certain mm, way. She brought out yes. Destiny's Child. She right. performed songs from throughout her career. I mean, this is a technique that she's going to refine on Homecoming, which is her ability to link her entire musical catalog together in this really fascinating way and her history and her legacy. So that's kind of where we are with her in 2013. Mm -hmm. And then on December 13th, 2013, with mm -hmm. absolutely no notice, an Instagram post is posted and she says, surprise. And it is a 16 track 
self-titled album Mm -hmm. with a video for each song. Before we get into the content of the self-titled album, can you talk about what that move was about on a commercial level? What was she doing there by giving us no warning, no ramp up, no advanced single, and then dropping an album that isn't just music, but is also this giant audio visual experience? Yeah. I mean, I think whether she strategized this as fully as we can imagine, <laughs> I can't sure believe I'm saying I, that. Of course she did. I mean, <laughs> she was reinventing the rollout clearly. And in terms of reinventing the rollout, she was creating a kind of cultural phenomenon event that could potentially be as immersive as the work itself. If you Mm. submitted to the moment in which the album was released, and this is now de facto the way that pop culture events happen in the 2020s now, but at the time we have to go back to remembering that this hadn't been tried at this scale ever before. And it meant that you could potentially have an experience that was even unlike, again, I cite my age here, Gen X days of... (laughs) Waiting outside Tower Records for the new Prince album. A way that we could be involved in a synchronous media event Mm, and to be linked together in the experience of this new music Mm. in a way that was not only emotionally and sonically immediate, but that had the potential to be culturally transformative, you Mm. know, if you opened yourself up to it. There's something about the scale of the event and a kind of strategy to catch people off and we can go into all of the different dimensions of the naming of the album itself, a kind of rebirth. Right. A self-titled album. That's important, I think. Right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's, a, it's like a gender reveal, you know, which, <laughs> you know, without all the bad politics attached to it. The element of surprise and elation. I remember it being electrifying. I remember that I, because I'm not on social media, that one of my grad students at the time came into my office and said, do you know that this happened? <laughs> like, what? Oh my God. I remember being with my friend Lindsay at my apartment and literally we had plans to go out that night and we mm. canceled them, curled up on the couch <laughs> and turned this thing on. Well, I'll never forget it as long as yes. I was one of the best nights of my life. Yes. I was like absolutely beside myself. At the level of this sort of superstardom digitally, it just hadn't happened before and it couldn't happen in the past. I mean, we would ride our bikes down to Tower and get Purple Rain on a Tuesday when it comes out in 1984 and then ride our bikes back home and take it out of the whole it's just a different experience i think that the self-titled naming is a really important element to the whole thing because this era of beyonce's career has been characterized by her mining herself in a very deep way as a means of expressing broader things about Mm -hmm. women black women american culture black culture Mm -hmm. black musical traditions american Mm -hmm. musical traditions it's the true representation of the personal being political like one of the purest distillations of that concept in pop music history Mm -hmm. the last 10 years swing of her career I think has been essentially defined by that so I do think the self-titled album naming is an important element to this I also think it's important to note in the context of what we were talking about with the other artists who had come before her in terms of you know sort of how do we maintain relevance I think it was an ingenious move to remove herself from 
the pop star rat race because yes. by not having to bloat singles and see what connected and right. try to get played on the radio, she made something that felt bigger than a regular cyclical pop star album release and then could be received and assessed as such and yes. was. And that was the genius, I think, of the commercial strategy more than anything, which was, yes, I think what you said, it created this shared moment in pop culture that was harder and harder to capture and has become almost impossible to capture in the modern internet era. But I mm -hmm. also think it was a very canny move on her part because Definitely. the sort of underlying truth about the Beyonce of the 2010s is that she hasn't been a particularly successful singles artist. None mm -hmm. of this has been about number one records on the radio. She's been able to make impact about something greater than traditional pop star metrics. Of yes. course, these records are big sellers, so she's just having that. To me, that's always struck me as kind of the genius move on a creative level right. for a pop star at that phase in her career. She no longer needed to care about floating hit singles, which is what a lot of pop stars' careers start right. to sink on. Absolutely, I agree with you, Louis. One of the many ways we can think about Beyonce's radicalism, even in the context of being a pop icon, to continuously reinvent the landscape in which she's situated mm -hmm. on her own terms. Yes. So absolutely in every way. I mean, the other thing about the album, she's not on the cover. We talk about rejecting mm. all of the ways in which pop stars and especially women pop stars are commodified and reified. And it's not to say that her gorgeousness is not fully on display in the visual album, but there are ways in which the visual accompaniment does all sorts of really fantastic, nuanced work at opening up her imagery and opening up the ways in which we reassess her as a pop icon. If we're talking about this record as absolutely fulfilling and manifesting the classic feminist mantra, the personal is political, mm -hmm. this is an album about intimacy, about unabashed lust, mm -hmm. lays down some tracks of thinking about domestic disruptions mm -hmm. and questions about betrayal and breakage in terms of partnership, how to rebuild that. Those visual shots on yes. Rocket. On the one hand, sonically, it's a classic neo-soul track. With mm -hmm. heavy nods to D'Angelo's mm -hmm. Untitled. It's about desire, about sexuality and sexual fulfillment. It does certain things with the patriarchal gaze in terms of really engaging with all of the details of Beyonce's physical beauty, but it also leans into paying close attention to her own sexual fulfillment. And the shots in the video can range from these sorts of visual tropes of concentric circles of water, which are mm. suggested of female orgasm, to different close-ups of her own bodily care and her own bodily attention and being sexually fulfilled. Mm. And so I guess I wanted to circle back to just re-emphasizing that this is sort of a disruption of the reification of Black female sexuality in popular music culture in order to recenter her claiming of sexual fulfillment and the terms of bodily care that often are left by the wayside when we think about pop music culture and sexuality altogether. So it's a long way of getting 
getting to the point of, again, exploding the kinds of expectations、mm. of what this kind of pop performance is supposed to look like and sound like at this moment in time. I love also how in the video she does one of these classic Beyonce gender dynamic flips when she lights the cigar. She's yes, played with this、right. before, like in the video for "Upgrade You,"、Definitely. where she like imitates Jay、yes. and assumes his sort of position、mm-hmm. and assumes the masculine role, which is fascinating because she's also in "Upgrade You" saying lyrics like "Still play my part and let you take the lead role. Believe me, I can do for you what Martin did for the people."、Yeah. You know, yes, I can、line. feed you. I can, <laughs> yes, you know,、right. and not to mention a song like "Cater to You," in、I、which she, yeah, yeah, yes, <laughs> no, right. <laughs> you took the words right out of my mouth. Yes, right. <laughs> you know, so this is a thread that runs through her career, where、Definitely. she's both the empowered, all-encompassing feminist, you know, that、right. puts herself first and sees herself as the power player and wants to be the man and the woman and、right. wants to make the money and be the demure、right. soft one. If I were a boy, yes,、right. yeah, if I were a boy,、mm-hmm. and then at the same time, Julianne Escobedo Shepard. Who was on the last episode referred to it almost as like perhaps a kink, where she enjoys also kind of the conservative、yes. gender dynamic at the same time. Oh yeah, Julianne once again, brilliant assessment, and、yeah. I think that that's something that on this fifth album that I think she's overtly trying to communicate to us. Right, absolutely. Yeah, you know, right. That this can be a part of the sexual fantasy that is、yes. fulfilling to her. Right. right, and we see that manifested in partition. There are all sorts of ways that all of us feminists have wrestled with what Beyonce feminism is and、right. what it means to lean into a kind of submissiveness,、mm-hmm. and yet also thinking very specifically about what feminist agency can look like and how wide and expanse it might be able to encompass. And people have different feelings about that, but I find it intriguing. I think the complexities and contradictions are, let's call it Shonda Rhimes feminism too, right? It's about <laughs> black women being able to. In- Encompass the multitudes, and、yes. we know that there are classic, legendary black feminists like the late great Bell Hooks, who was never right, was not into it. That, right? <laughs> She、um, was not into it. <laughs> no, no, but I'm open to it, and I、yeah. find it really, really compelling. Well, it creates a complexity that belies the veneer of perfection that she puts into、yes. her performance. I think this、exactly. is where the darkness is, in a way that you don't get in the sort of pristine presentation. Is in these complicated feelings she has inside about her role as a woman.、Yes. And I think that what's also really interesting to me about this album is sometimes I see like if "Dangerously in Love" is a celebration of ecstatic love, me myself and I perhaps notwithstanding, this is、right. largely a celebration of ecstatic lust, but、mm-hmm. only in the context. Context of a long-term monogamous relationship. Yes, I think Beyonce feels the freest to be herself and express herself in the confines of that dynamic, and、yeah. that's what this album, to me, almost is like an expanse of. Like、mm-hmm. she's drunk in love.
she's able to be this kind of horny, carnal, lustful being on that song, on Rocket as well. She loves that they're both no angel, that you're bad and I'm bad too, but we're bad together. And it's a thing that we're in cahoots Bonnie and Clyde. Yes, Bonnie (laughs) and Clyde. And then, of course, the other thing that's tied up so much in Beyonce's oeuvre Mm -hmm. is the lust, love, wealth triangle. Because so much of the ways that Beyonce expresses her lust for her husband and her love Mm -hmm. for her husband is Mm -hmm. in we make so much money together (laughs) and we're so powerful together. And the way that partition takes place in the back of a chauffeured limousine. Right. Those are Noel's family values. I they mean, are. There, there are complicated <laughs> things, right, that I want to be respectful to the Noel's family, absolutely. But I mean this in the sense of we know from the start of DC, start of Destiny's Child, that. Yeah. The public embrace of Black capitalist survival and success, especially through Tina Knowles and through yes. the beauty salon, which you know, they pay tribute to in the Bills, Bills, Bills video. Right. That's a part of her ethics. You know, I think that triangle that you are mapping for us, Louis, is really provocative. I hadn't really thought about it before in the context of her, and I'm going to use this literary term that I use sometimes, Bildungsroman, which is a fancy term for a novel of development, David right. Copperfield and Right. Some of the Toni Morrison classics, like Sula. Her building Roman via that triangle of wealth and monogamy and lust. They manifest her trajectory of coming into consciousness as a woman. Mm-hmm. You know, we have to keep in mind that Beyonce is a teenager when Destiny's Child is signed. She's been now with Jay for half of her life, mm-hmm. right? So, you know, it is the major relationship of her life. And the fact that all three things are coming together kind of simultaneously, hitting a crescendo, I think it's really meaningful in kind of understanding how these tropes are mutually constitutive of each other. They inform each other, right? And they inform who she becomes all at once. Yeah, I think you're right. And I also think she's quite proud about the ways that she's rectified financially through her relationship with Jay and through her canny businesswoman Yes, the horrors that have been put upon many black female artists that have come before her that have been in the industry and have been taken advantage of from the beginning of recorded time on. And I think that both she and Jay see themselves as accumulating wealth and celebrating that as some sort of reparation or some sort of form of righting wrongs in the past and particularly for black people in entertainment. And I think that it's funny because, you know, sometimes I think she can cross over a line and it happens more on their joint album where you start to feel like icky about it. Sometimes it it can take on the patina of like Louis the 14th and Marie Antoinette, like, you know, in in the castle, throwing crumbs at the peasants. You know what I mean? Like while we're all out here, like, But I do think that that's where it comes in. Like, they're both horny for each other's shared perspective (laughs) on this 
You know what I mean? Like yeah. that really binds them together in a lot of their music. I do think that the wealth piece of it, which for those of us academic wonks and social activist wonks, you know, right. we worry about what capitalism right. hath wrought, you know, sure. especially on Black people who were trafficked as products. Right. You right. know, right. that's right. something that's often a critique of her work. And I leave space for people to have feelings about that. And I'm also interested in the ways that those capitalist desires for her are seemingly bound up with a figurative and literal investment in the sustainability of the black community. Exactly. So there, you know, right. there's a way that those desires are always desires that are about a connectivity to the masses, the folks, everyone who came before, the many thousands gone, as James Baldwin would say. Mm. And of course, for future generations, right? The ways in which there are children yes, and right. the idea of black childhood plays into their ideas about success and about mm. capital. Mm -hmm. It's a recurring theme. People can have all sorts of feelings about it, but it's very much there and central to her work. I think of that line on Everything is Love where she says, my great, great, grandchildren already rich. That's a lot of black children on your Forbes list or something yes, like that. Yes, yes. To hang on to that fifth album, which is just really exquisite in so many ways. And I was really struck by Superpower when I went back to it in multiple ways, sonically, lyrically, and also in terms of the video. Lyrically, we can think about this kind of partnership that exceeds the terms given socially of social convention to become something greater than the sum mm. of two, to fight the forces that you know, in classic pop songs can tear us apart. The video reminds us that this album is from 2013 and that Beyonce has made a crucial political pivot to be able to lay claim to a kind of politics of Black solidarity and resistance. And that duet with Frank Ocean, as it's dramatized with like an all-star cast, right. fighting a militarized police, it's tying political resistance to all of the different other forms of sexual expression and intimacy and care that the album is trafficking in. And it sets up Lemonade in all right. sorts of brilliant ways. She's almost saying you couldn't break us down both in terms of her own relationship and yeah. making a broader statement about her people, essentially. Yeah. Like, I had the same reaction listening to it this time. I think another thing that Superpower might be an interesting window in is just kind of the sonic palette oh, of this record, which is that- The, the timpani, I mean, oh my God. And the way that it's sort of bound together as this electro R&B album mm -hmm. that incorporates so many different other genres into it. Like yes. Superpower's almost a doo-wop song, essentially. Absolutely. It's like trip hop doo wop. Yeah, you know? exactly. Yeah. Like filtered through 2013 electro R&B. Yeah. 
And the fact that it's a duet, that duet I think is very important in terms of thinking about alliances and collaboration and partnership. You know what you were making me think about earlier too is that I've always seen Beyonce as kind of like the ultimate editor-in-chief of pop. Like yes. I think Beyonce <laughs> is the greatest of all time. I mean, Madonna was very good at this as well. I think she has the broad vision and she knows exactly who to go to to be like, you do this, 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 you yes. do this, you do this. She's a curator. Right. And a lot of times these collaborators like won't even be in the same room as each other and don't even know they're working on songs right. together. And all of a sudden they'll get the finished album and they'll be like, oh, wait, like what? I'm on this song with this person and that right, person and, right, and she's right. kind of like taken what was once a chorus and turned it yes. into a bridge and had somebody come in and like just program the synth element with all of that in mind what are the other kind of sonic aesthetic things that strike you on this record i mean it's been characterized as alternative r&b mm -hmm. i want to sidebar and just say that as a callback to something that you were talking about earlier about her jettisoning the standard pop star playbook of leaning into singles that this is also, for me, a sociocultural statement about where and how Black women matter in pop, to be able to embrace the, the long-playing record form once again, which Black women have historically been shut out of the Grammys. I could go on and on about this. Of course, yes. Of course, with Beyonce, but Lauryn Hill is the last, I believe, the last African-American woman to win Album of the Year for the Grammys. And there's only a handful of women of color like Nora Jones who've ever won in that category. Yes, so right. there's a way that Beyonce, in terms of embracing these long-playing, long-viewing types of artistic works, is articulating something about the scale of our worth in popular mm. music culture and about what she's capable of in terms of creating a massively dense and complicated and multifaceted right. masterpiece, right. right? So in that sense, there's something about the fifth album that's incredibly cohesive. It's called Alternative R&B, but it has all of these different dimensions to it in terms of throwback trip hop and neo soul. I always think about Erica Badu on that spoken word part of I, Ghost. Yes, yes. I love all those weird callbacks to various black art forms. I mean, callbacks, right? It's again, it's archival. Blow is like a Donna Summer song filtered yes. through electronic. Right. No Angel gives me Sierra and Aaliyah yes. and yes. Partition gives me like hyphy. And then Flawless gives you Trap. You wake up, post up, round round in it, lossing on it, this diamond, my diamond, this rock, my rock. I woke up like this, I woke up like this, we flawless. And also gives you rapping Beyonce, which is a right. really important pose which that she's is really important. Can you talk a little bit about rapping Beyonce? Yeah, I mean, I think rapping Beyonce is one of the many reasons why we're talking about this artist's longevity. I mean, mm. because we're talking about an artist who was able to continue to expand her fan base by being so completely fluent in the dominant pop music form globally in right. the 21st century, and yet still being able to also virtual 
classically dominate pop vocalizing, R&B vocalizing. There are things she's doing with her vocals on the fifth album. Extraordinary in terms of higher registers and female falsetto, as it's sometimes called, quote unquote, lower registers on superpower. There's a breaking of convention of the standard pop music and vocals that she's playing with across the record, mm -hmm. which also allows us to think about experimentations being central to this record in right. all sorts of bold, yes. really brave ways. Right. Flawless is also a very unconventionally structured Absolutely. song. Yes. It essentially yes. begins as this one song, Bow Down. and morphs into this other song linked together by this Chimamanda quote yes. that has kind of like lived on in infamy. When does that happen <laughs> in pop? We teach girls to shrink themselves, to make themselves smaller. We say to girls, you can have ambition, but not too much. You should aim to be successful, but not too successful. Otherwise, you will threaten the man. Because I am female, I'm expected to aspire to marriage. I'm expected to make my life choices, always keeping in mind that marriage is the most important. A marriage can be a source of joy and love and mutual support. But why do we teach girls to aspire to marriage and we don't teach boys the same? We raise girls to see each other as competitors, not for jobs or for accomplishments, which I think can be a good thing, but for the attention of men. We teach girls that they cannot be sexual beings in the way that boys are. Feminist, a person who believes in the social, political, and economic equality of the sexes. That's a big turning point for her because that's really where she stakes her claim as feminist. That's when she stood in front of the sign that said feminist. Stood in front of the sign for her video Vanguard Award performance, yeah. the MTV Awards in mm -hmm. 2014. But, you know, there's so many things that Beyonce does that because there's so many things happening, we don't even stop to pause and say, has this ever happened before in pop music history? It right. has never happened before in pop music history that you've had a novelist yeah. of any stripe or color, a black feminist novelist. Yes. And and cultural critic, soundbite, giving us a working definition of feminism, let alone a working definition of anything. It's just never happened before. I was saying no. this in my classes. And that's remarkable and crucial too, because people like to talk about Lemonade as her political statement album. But we need to remember that the fifth album actually sets up a long arc of thinking about Black resistance politics, and it puts feminism first. It's like, mm. I'm going to make this album that's about the personal, as political, mm -hmm. as about the aspiration towards sexual fulfillment. Mm -hmm. And I'm going to frame it in terms of my definitions of feminism inspired by this landmark novelist and thinker. And then we're going to get to the work of expanding how we think about the BLM movement and its relationship to our brokenness in the world. Mm. But I'm starting here. Absolutely. And I think that that's also an interesting window into the other quieter thread on this album, but that feels very prescient, which is, as you mentioned up top when we started talking about this, the thread of anxiety, paranoia, and infidelity that exists on a few of these songs that I think is a good way for us to maybe perhaps transition forward in her career. As you mentioned, I think it exists on Haunt yeah. It exists on No Angel at one point, she says. 
Baby, would you rather I be a machine who doesn't notice when you're late or when you're lying? I know I drive you crazy, but would you rather that I be a machine who doesn't notice when you lay or when you lying? It exists on mine. She says at one point, I'm not feeling myself since the baby. I was thinking about separations and breakups. Been having conversations about breakups and separations. I'm not feeling like myself since the baby. Are we gonna even make it all? Cause if we are, we're taking this a little too far. Jealous, where she essentially returns to a theme that she's talked about on Say My Name, on Ring the Alarm, on all of these songs, where yes. she is insinuating for the umpteenth time that she's <laughs> being stepped out on. Right. I'm in my penthouse, half naked. Half naked, half naked. I cook this meal for you naked. So where the hell you at? Just one shot left of this drink in this glass. Don't make me break I'm just curious how Beyonce is ultimately presenting this relationship in the totality of this record. Because if it's 80% a celebration, which I think is an accurate representation of this record, what is the purpose of including these moments of anxiety and paranoia and infidelity in the mix? Like, I, I wonder how that sort of helps create maybe just a fuller version of Beyonce that this album is giving us. I mean, one of the words that you used earlier, it's a word that she used in some of the statements she made about the album at the time is imperfection, right? Mm-hmm. And we get that from the opening track from Pretty Hurts, right? right. And so there's a way that the duality of imperfection and absolute fastidious virtuosic, you know, artistic and performative genius. I I have to say, I have to interject one moment and just say, I laughed out loud during Pretty Hurts, the music video, where like she looks in the mirror and she's got like mascara running down her face, and that's supposed to convey that she like looks less than perfect. It reminds me of the way that like Michael Jackson used to think that like the representation of like a town was like a Disney movie set, like these child stars don't know what know. that actually means. It was like, Beyonce thinks she's showing us like this ugly side of her, but meanwhile, she still looks like the most beautiful person I've ever seen in my entire life. I know, I know. And so, I mean, I guess one of the things to think about is whether or not she's also challenging us, if we can go there, to think about imperfection in different registers, right? So what lies beneath, so to speak, right? Mm-hmm. And what it means to actually work even harder to be flawless right. because of this kind of mindfulness of right. the mortal ways in which we are all imperfect. Absolutely. You know, it's a tricky thing. She has an anthemic streak, you know, from single ladies, sure. backward and forward, right? Sure. Crazy in love, everything. Yes. There's a way that her branding is also tied to the kinds of messages that I really do think that she's invested in communicating to young women of color. There's always that tension between what you convey in order to aspire towards and what's achievable. But Beyonce's argument is everything is achievable. Work hard. Yes, she represents that. I do think she represents that. Yes. So, of course, this record is received rapturously commercially and critically. It's Mm -hmm. her most well-regarded work to this point. It is a blockbuster success. It sells, I think, 650,000 copies in Mm -hmm. the first week that it's released. Mm -hmm. It 
kind of reinvents Beyonce's career and public image and sets her on the track through the rest of this decade. We don't really hear from Beyonce again until 2016. This time, the rollout is slightly different for her sixth record, Lemonade. It begins in February 2016 when she surprise drops a video for her single, Formation. Now, Formation is another sort of like radical shift in Beyonce's aesthetics and presentation of her politics. And that extends to both the music video, which drops in tandem with the single One Week, and then her performance as a guest (laughs) at Coldplay's Super Bowl performance one week later, where she performs it in Black Panther garb, which of course stirs up quite a bit of controversy. So just thinking about the Formation movement, the video, the song, this performance and what it means... Can you just talk a little bit about what Formation is as a movement and how it reestablishes her as this kind of artist activist? So many people have written about the album about Formation in particular. We want to keep in mind that the NFL is a charged landscape in which to try to resist and to deploy Black critique. Mm -hmm. You can be punished in spectacular ways as Mm -hmm. dear 49er Colin Kaepernick, shout out to my Bay Area. Yes. Brethren mm-hmm. suffered from and still suffers from. And, and so, Janet. Right. And Janet, right. Mm-hmm. And so, mm-hmm. right. We've got that nexus exactly in terms mm-hmm. of Black women pop peril mm-hmm. and Black folks peril in the NFL. Mm-hmm. And so, to emerge in that event in the Bay Area, hailing and engaging with the legacies of Black revolutionary politics that were rooted in the barrier, the Black Panthers movement Mm. coming out of Oakland, using that kind of aesthetic in order to frame the terms in which the song is introduced already creates this socio-political richness and insurgency that people just weren't ready for, yet everybody was ready for it. And in a way, actually, to lean into that, I think we were really hungry for our biggest stars being able to join in and embrace being a mouthpiece for resistance on the biggest stage in the world, right? And so Formation is an interesting track because on the one hand, it has these kinds of literal articulations of solidarity and coming prepared for the fight and lining up in order to really, and I'm still thinking of those superpower images, to Mm -hmm. be ready, to be on call Mm. for this larger battle that we've always been entrenched in, but that we are now being summoned to redouble our efforts, right? But on the other hand, it's lyrically, it's a fascinating song because there are all sorts of abstractions (laughs) about wealth. about sexuality, right? Yes. Red Lobster. Yes, Red Lobster. Which I absolutely 
love. I mean, yes, it's such a delicately written and recorded song in the sense that it is both a radical act and also an extremely fun and catchy and enjoyable pop Absolutely. single, which is yes. really the neat trick of formation in a sense. Right. It's like equally a call to arms as it is like a rump shaker. Yes, right, exactly. <laughs> the thematic thread that ties everything together is yes, desire. Right. This mm. kind of desire for social movement and social transformation and sexual fulfillment and being financially sustainable and wealthy and mm-hmm. being able to actually flip the bird on both white supremacists and any of the kinds of social critics who believe that she was not capable of something of this kind of magnitude and gravitas. It's doing all that. I think one of the most powerful moments in the song that's always struck me, because it speaks to some of the threads that we've been pulling apart in this conversation, in terms of positioning herself in both Black musical history and American Mm -hmm. history in this way, is I love my Negro nose with Jackson 5 nostrils. Yes, right. Of course, of course, of course. I don't think we had ever heard Beyonce speak so frankly about her politics or about her racial politics or about presenting her physical body in that way. Yes. Perhaps, of course, except Bootylicious, in which she also sort of stood behind black beauty norms and presented them in the face of a white centric pop world and said hey like I like this shit about myself and then of course to bring the Jacksons into it both Michael and Janet being two of her most obvious predecessors and to place herself in that lineage physically in the way that she has musically in the past was just a thrilling lyric in so many different ways the minute I heard that lyric I was like something has shifted here yes because she was coy about her politics early on in her career in the 2000s era she was political by sheer dint of her existence and her success but she wasn't particularly overt with like statements of black power and all that kind of stuff well and that's really central right that the panthers being so critical too and that the vanguard of the black power movement and the black is beautiful movement and a kind of reclamation of self-love this is the kind of through line that we see her drawing through those lyrical moments of a jubilant embrace of blackness in the face of this kind of physical right. brutalization of blackness. Absolutely. And I think the other thing that ties formation to the eventual record that will drop two months later, Lemonade, is something that you wrote in your book where you said, this is the undergirding philosophy of Lemonade, that black women activists, mothers of the movement and culture workers, musicians and dancers, athletes and actors, legendary chefs and Mardi Gras masqueraders might re-inhabit the ruins of our spurned history, might reclaim the earth and overrun the wilderness with our wildly sensual and sumptuous celebratory selves and ultimately birth a new time and restorative new collectivities. And the thing about the formation video is Beyonce is dancing, and Melina Matsukis talks about this, in essentially a plantation with paintings in the classical French colonial style that would have been reserved for slave owners at that particular time, but are all portraits of black women, I think, in particular, which I think is a really powerful image in the formation video that sort of speaks to Beyonce's entire ethos during this era, and also kind of like helps set up Lemonade, which is the record that she then drops with one week's notice this time. She gave us a week to get our shit together this time (laughs) and releases without much uh, clarity on what exactly it was on HBO in April 2016. So let's talk about Lemonade because I think Lemonade even more so than the visual album you cannot pull apart 
the visual yeah. elements from the music. So yeah. can you just talk to me about what Lemonade is? I know that's a big question. <laughs> oh my God. Well, I mean, a couple of things to think about contextually about the release of this album. Mm -hmm. It's released the Saturday after Prince dies. They collaborated at the Grammys and right. such a mentor to her. She goes on the Lemonade tour and sings The Beautiful Ones, mm -hmm. a classic from Purple Brain. The other thing I'll say about the passage that you read, Louis, thank you for reading it. I mm -hmm. wrote that entire section of the book when I was in New Orleans. I was giving a talk and mm -hmm. to be in the landscape that is so central to the limited narrative and to the larger circumatlantic slavery narrative that mm -hmm. Beyonce is pulling apart and re-engaging in this work. It was an awesome thing. Awesome right. meaning ominous, right? Right. And you talk a lot about in your book the way that the setting in New Orleans is so critical to this. Yeah. Absolutely. And even in formation in those lines that you were referencing earlier and talking about her Black body, the entanglements between the Blackness of her body and the Blackness of the geography out of which her family comes is mm. so deeply central to tropes on the album. I've often said that Lemonade is a record about the nature of our sorrow as Black mm. women in America, as well as our rage, our grief, and our remarkable, boundless efforts to not only heal ourselves in the face of chronic, systemic, and intimate violence that we've endured across the centuries as Black women, but to also radically repair a nation is one of the other ambitions of the album through Black women's genius and fortitude and deeply disregarded creativity and imagination. So it really does matter that you see such a range of Black women creatives and activists who are cameoing in this film. They're a part of this collective that then comes together in this gorgeous garden, mm. this clearing space mm. with a shout out to Toni Morrison and Beloved again. But to bring together this community that is and has to be healed and at the center of our healing mm. if there ever is going to be one in this country. So I'm always moved beyond speech about what this record has done and yeah. what this record is. It's absolutely extraordinary. It's a deeply moving piece. I mean, I hadn't watched it in a couple of years mm -hmm. and I couldn't function for the rest of the day after yeah. I watched it. I was moved, as I mentioned earlier in the conversation, by the healing aspect of this for Beyonce because yeah. this record, as we know, is largely about infidelity. It's a concept album, essentially, that moves through the stages of grief uh, in specific, she has different chapters in the film that correspond to that. And each song is meant to represent a stage in both like the discovery of the infidelity and then into the healing of the relationship. And I was just so moved having listened to all of her music in very short order over the last you know few weeks in the way that by understanding intergenerational trauma, Beyonce was able to answer a question that her art has been attempting to solve this entire yes. time and to forgive her husband and to help heal him 
and to help heal herself, and then was able to so bravely put that out there in such a gorgeously rendered yes. piece of work is just, as you said, the greatest piece of art that has existed in my personal lifetime. And I yeah. think it's something that I have chills just speaking about it because it's something that's greater than the sum of its parts, which I think speaks to truly transcendent art. Yes. Like sometimes when I'm listening to this as just music, I'm like, yeah, great album. I really enjoy this album. Obviously the music is amazing. It's great. But there's something about when you experience that film and you see the songs tied together in these visuals and the way that she does it and in those stark shots of all of these black women inhabiting mm -hmm. these plantation spaces, these dilapidated plantations, or in her lying at center field in the Superdome, or as you talk right. about her in that subterranean garage space underneath the Superdome. Right, yeah. You know, during Don't Hurt Yourself, which is a fascinating, mm -hmm. I think, emblem of this album, because not only is this the song where she basically ends Jay-Z's life on HBO. <laughs> I will never forget her throwing that ring at the camera as long as I live. As Call long me as Malcolm I, X. I screamed. I screamed. When she takes her ring off and she tosses that thing at the camera, I was like, this woman is leaving her husband on national television. I yeah, yeah, yeah. It. But Louie, that song, think about the work of this record. I mean, that song is also, yes. to go back to the theme of repair and reparations, yes. that's a song that actually samples when the levee breaks. Right. Red Zeppelin. Keeps on People right. know the history of Led Zeppelin's inability to fully acknowledge the blues musicians who completely informed their work, and especially a black woman artist like Memphis Minnie, who originally recorded When the Levee yes. Breaks. And to pair up with Jack White for this kind of a recording to repair and to confront the levels of exploitation mm. and marginalization and intellectual and cultural violence in addition to capitalistic violence meted out on Black bodies and Black people's labor. I yeah. mean, that's all happening just in that song. I know, right? it's incredible. You know? Right. It's like reclaiming rock history for Black women in it the is. course of this music. It's incredible. Yeah. It is, but it becomes a part of this larger trope that is running through the album, which is about domestic infidelity, but it right. is also about the ways in which a country has perpetually failed Black people and Black women in particular. Mm. Not just failed them, but continuously tried to annihilate us. You yes, know? right, right. And when I wrote that first early 
academic piece that was about Yance, and it was also about Mary J. Blige's performance with U2 on the Hurricane Katrina telethon, the famous one where Yay, whose yes. name, why the, you know, Thank you George for Bush saying doesn't his care name, about right. black Very people. Yeah, okay, right. yes. <laughs> you know, George Bush doesn't care about black people. Apparently, Yay yes. doesn't anymore either. Yes. But whatever to yes. that. Yes. The point is that Mary J. pairs with U2 and covers their song One. Right. And I wrote about it in the sense of really thinking powerfully about what it meant to think about the allegory of a black woman confronting white patriarchy within the context of the narrative of the song and holding them accountable for the brutalities of what Hurricane Katrina hath wrought. And, mm. and Lemonade extends that theme manifold that takes that microcosm of performance and then explodes it into a thousand different gorgeous and riveting and painful pieces. And then ties it back together in order for us to begin to try and heal somehow. How else do we see that, what you're talking about, that concept rendered in specific songs on this record? <laughs> you know, famously, of course, Hold Up. Hold up, they don't love you like I love you. Slow down, they don't love you like I love you. Back up, they don't love you like I love you. Step down, they don't love you like I love you. Can't you see there's no other man above you? What a wicked way to treat the girl that loves you. Oh, love, they don't love you like I love you. Oh, down, they don't love you like I love you. Which yes. sonically is also so incredible because oh, she's, my God. she's living up to those early aughts years when there were all sorts of sightings of Yance and Jay in Brooklyn at like Grizzly Bear, you know, all of the indie <laughs> concerts, exactly. right? Yes, you know? right? So sonically, you're getting the Father John Misty and the Yaya yeah, yeah, Gaz that are mm -hmm. coming across and that. And Ezra Koenig. <laughs> right, Ezra, right, yeah. Or Mr. Rashida Jones. Of course. If you want to get deep into the Love Us Love that magazine, couple, well, one of my favorites. Right, exactly. Yes. Mm -hmm. So the arc of confrontation in the visual narrative is so vivid and spectacular and something like Hold Up with the Baseball Bat all the mm -hmm. way through with Serena and Sorry. Yeah. I guess I'm thinking about all of the different emotional colors that she is able to bring to the table and thinking about what it means to actually address our grievances as mm. a people, right? To give space and value to all of those different feelings. Since, of course, Black women, of course, are historically punished for being angry, quote unquote. Mm -hmm. And so to give space to that rage, but also those feelings of grief and sorrow and loss and to bring that fullness of affective life into the space of reckoning mm -hmm. with white systemic patriarchy as well as patriarchy within the home is one of the many powerful components of this record, the visual narrative as well as the sonic narrative that I appreciate so much. I love that. Thinking about Hold Up, I pulled out the lyric, what's worse, looking jealous or crazy? <laughs> What's worst? Looking jealous or crazy, jealous or crazy. 
or like being walked all over lately, walked all over lately. I'd rather be crazy. If we are going to accept the narrative that Beyonce has often been mining ecstatic love and infidelity in all of her work thus far, I almost took that line as, what's worse, looking jealous, aka the song on the fifth record that we just spoke about, or crazy in love. Yes. I almost feel like this is a response, not embarrassment, but sort of like yeah. she's been made a fool of for her yes. devotion to ecstatic love yes. as a result of the infidelity. When I hear that line, I'm like, this is the encapsulation of like the entire Beyonce project in yes. one lyric. <laughs> like, yes, what's no. worse? What is worse? Standing out here and showing you my heart and how obsessed yes. I am with you and how ready I am to go all in on this relationship yes. or the way you are literally, as she says in this, killing me. I mean, she... As she <laughs> Right. She multiple no. times refers to this yes. infidelity as you're supposed to be my ally in life and you are literally yes. murdering me. So what are you going to say at my funeral now that you've killed me? Here lies the body of the love of my life whose heart I broke without a gun to my head. Here lies the mother of my children, both living and dead. Rest in peace, my true love who I took for granted, most bomb pussy, who because of me sleep evaded. Her shroud is loneliness, her God was listening. Her heaven will be a love without betrayal. Ashes to ashes, dust to side chicks. It's one of the most powerful elements of kind of the poetry of this that loops through this whole film. Right. That's so well put, Louis. It really is. Right. And there's a Black Poetics, you know, that runs throughout the film as well. Mm -hmm. Larson shares lyrics that, again, is unprecedented. Okay. (laughs) So we're Mm -hmm. thinking about that kind of partnership of a pop star with a poet and bringing to life a multifaceted sonic and visual narrative. It's extraordinary. You know, of course, she reclaims country in the same way that she reclaims rock and roll on Daddy Lessons. A crucial song here where she links her father's own philandering and infidelity to her own sort of laying out the intergenerational trauma aspect of this record's thesis. You know, she says at one point, when trouble comes in town and men like me come around, my daddy said, shoot. That's right. She sort of has this moment of reckoning on Love Drought, which is one of my Mm -hmm. favorite tracks on the record that sort of sounds like R&B in 2059 or something like that. Yes, 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 yeah. That's where she says, you're my lifeline and you're trying to kill Mm me. A line that's always cut very deep for me personally, I think, because her career has often and music has often been framed around the idea of her and Jay against the world that he's the only person who can really understand her, that they really only have each other. I mean, this is 03 Bonnie and Clyde. 
and all of their work together on some level represents this. So that line always really stabs me in the heart when I hear it because it's like she really felt like the one person that she was relying on in this world just dusted her and... That's a really powerful moment in that mm-hmm. song. Interestingly, in contrast to her sort of fascination with wealth and power, mm-hmm. I don't care about the lights and the things, she says at one point. Right. Song. Yeah. That is um, right. A real shift in her perspective on that. A but, real shift. Yeah. But she does ultimately forgive him. And I remember mm-hmm. initially feeling as though that was a letdown because mm-hmm. when I first watched it, I was like, fuck this guy. I mean, yes. I just remember feeling <laughs> like, how could he do this to her? Yeah. But on this recent listen through, mm-hmm. I got it because I sort mm-hmm. of felt like she was able to see the ways in which this wasn't his fault all of a sudden some right. level. And right. I'm curious what you make of that as mm-hmm. that being the conclusion to the arc of the record. Like, what is that attempting to convey? I mean, I do think that, again, that broad, long arc of history, I'm mm-hmm. kind of riffing on a very famous line, but thinking about it backwards rather than forward, is so crucial to her own kind of understanding of her own selfhood, of right. her partner's selfhood, and right. of what the terms of their partnership are and right. informed by, right? right? So I think that that's important. And I think the fact that the line that gives us the title of the album, the yes. mantra from... Jay's grandma had. Right. brings it all back to the innovations of Black womanhood, not just in terms of survival. We're long past DC and survivor mode, right? (laughs) You know, this is about innovation, about Mm. what it means to actually do something deeply brave and deeply inventive with the ruins, you know? Mm. And honestly, and my my dear friend and colleague, the scholar Farrah Griffin, who's writing about this in relation to Toni Morrison's work, I mean, this is kind of a recurring trope in Black feminist literature, what it means to not just survive the ruins, but to do something in spite of and informed by a knowledge of what the ruins constitute. And I'm thinking, we'll go literary deep walk one more time. In Song of Solomon, there's a character with the classics name of Circe who is living in the shambles of the mansion of her oppressors, of the slaveholder's family. She's lived on while that entire white patriarchal edifice has crumbled around her. And she becomes a kind of a symbol of futurity mm. by way of not just survival, but being able to sift through the ruins and figure out how to not just, how to not build back better. Right? <laughs> um, oh Don't God, but it. no, Don't I won't. No. But to build <laughs> something entirely new. And I think that Beyonce has gifted us with that. She has exemplified that in her career. She's extraordinary. I mean, I get teary thinking about her. I just think I she's- I do too. I do too. And I, I'm moved by the reconciliation, but I mm-hmm. also think it speaks to the threads that we've been pulling out about her feminism throughout this whole conversation, which is that she's ultimately traditional woman. She wants this Mm. to work. Mm. And I think she understands and has always understood her position in culture and what she represents Mm -hmm. and that them staying together meant something 
two mm-hmm. people. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I'm psychoanalyze her. You know, I don't know her. <laughs> we, we only know about Beyonce, I guess, what she wants us to know. But right. it's just a fascinating thing to go through the journey of this record because mm-hmm. I think a lot of her fan base hasn't let go of the anchor in the way oh, that sure. she has, uh, you know. Know. <laughs> like come on that was even happening on the tour I think both tours and I right. also wonder like in the sense of like putting too much on black women as saviors and healers and all of this so like how do you view this through that lens like I mean it's kind yeah. of putting a lot on her shoulders to make sense of this all and then to heal him and to heal everybody there's something about this record that's Sometimes you can look at it through that lens. Like Mm. she's taking on such a huge responsibility the same way that she takes on the responsibility of being the man and the woman, the breadwinner and the feminine one, the feminist and the person who likes to put her husband's slippers on. Yes. Pretty hurts, but I'm also (laughs) perfect. You look at, you know what I mean? It's like. Yeah, I do. I mean, I I guess I also want to think maybe that I want to imagine her as not necessarily reverting back to some of the earlier iterations of traditional womanhood that we've talked about in her lyricism. But that there's a pivot towards thinking about care work in relation to the human that runs throughout Lemonade and that is crucial to our social justice politics. I mean, All Night is actually one of right. my favorite tracks, oh, right? Song, it's yes. euphoria, not the show, but um, <laughs> the feeling that's rooted in a kind of reclamation of what it means to be alive and to be aligned with someone you've come to trust again and mm-hmm. to care about deeply. So many people that I know, they just trying to touch you. Kiss up and rub up and fill up. Kiss up and rub up and fill up on you. Give you some time to prove that I can trust you. Again, I'm gonna kiss up and rub up and fill up. Kiss up and rub up and fill up on you all night. Those are the best human ethics and feelings that we can imagine and Mm -hmm. believe in. And that's how I think of the Beyonce of the late 2010s and 2020s. And really opening out to think diasporically about that in something like Black is King as well. So the scale has changed, you know. It's still about you and me, so to speak, Jay and Bay, Bonnie and Clyde. But it is about our communities, our children, our world. And so there's an ethical through line that is absolutely dazzling and riveting and compelling and seductive and moving. All right. So Beyonce over the last six years or so hasn't released another solo record since Lemonade. It's been not a drought, though, because she has done a number of really interesting things that I think we could just talk about in tandem with each other. These are one The Coachella performance in 2018, which (laughs) was then released as a film called Homecoming. You ready? Let's go get on. There was the joint album with Jay, Everything is Love, soon after in 2018. And there was notably the Lion King companion record, The Gift, that then became the visual album, Black is King. How do these texts that are not necessarily full-blown solo artistic statements from her in the way that all her solo records are help enrich or solidify her legacy and who she is in the pop landscape. Is there anything that jumps out at you about any of those projects that just feels like an important piece in helping us understand who Beyonce is as we move into mm-hmm. this new era, this new project? Yeah, I mean, apeshit. It was an event for a variety of different reasons, and it took the 
critique of the West that is running through the foundation of Lemonade, it took that into the level of granule visual detail in the Louvre. It like just went to the heart of everything. <laughs> Right. And just to clarify for listeners what Dr. Brooks is talking about, she's referring to the video for Ape Shit, the lead single for Everything is Love, in which Beyonce and Jay-Z essentially like took over the Louvre for the day and features a lot of still shots of them standing in front of the Mona Lisa and various other great works of European and French art. I go back to that and I think about if we pair Ape Shit with Black is King Mm -hmm. and the ways in which kind of sumptuous black diasporic wealth, and I mean that visually and artistically. Yes, right, right, right. right. Which is what Black is King really is. Exactly, right? (laughs) That that is the rejoinder to Mm. the Mm. violence that frames the terms in which we historically have just now in the 2020s have come to begin to confront and reckon with Mm -hmm. in edifices like the Louvre. There is something about the ways that she is continuing to lean into the cultural intellectualism. I think that's really powerful. Black feminist cultural and Black radical tradition, cultural intellectualism Mm -hmm. in her work Mm -hmm. that was ever evolving and of course Mm -hmm. manifests itself most fully in Lemonade. And so on the one hand, I know people have talked about this era and I would agree with that as a kind of a victory lap. Like what do you do after Lemonade, right? Right. (laughs) That that there are really thoughtful and bold and still movingly creative ways that she's trying to pick apart the nuances of the problem, the systemic problem that Lemonade leans into so powerfully. I loved how you talked about Beyonce as having healing properties, the fifth album. I think Black is King is a very healing and soothing record and visual album, which I rewatched this morning. Thinking about the soothing tones of that, it's almost like she was able to pick up the pieces of her own shattered life through Lemonade and put that all back together and then was able to sort of extend that out into the sort of greater Black diaspora community through that film and album. Yes. It was honestly healing just listening and sitting in it. I mean, it's almost as if by gesturing towards the music of Africa and expanding the view outside of just American history and Black American history, she is helping to connect not just to the trauma of Black American women, but to also claim healing for the entire African diaspora and her tone on it comes across as so much less about her own story and so much more about gracing the world with her healing energy or something like that. Yes. Of course, still the most extravagant thing I'd ever yes, seen in my life. Yes, the most life. extravagant. It makes Lemonade as just a pure act of filmmaking yes. seem like a student film compared yeah. to it. I'm yeah, curious. I'm so glad that you said that. And I really am appreciating going back to it as yeah. well, since there were so many high expectations for it, obviously, yeah. when it dropped. And again, in my world in academia, there are great Black feminists like the superstar scholar Sidia Hartman, who's written 
written three world-altering books. Her second book, Lose Your Mother, is about African-Americans' aspirations to return to Africa and the tour industry amongst African-Americans and returning to West Africa. And also the grief attached to that and looking for something that you're never going to find. Mm. And I'm kind of thinking about the ways that Black is King, rather than engaging in some kind of a literal return, it is trafficking in fantasy that still has all of its capitalistic bells and whistles on it, right? Um, It wouldn't be a Beyonce project. It wouldn't be Beyonce without it. That that make people uncomfortable. But if we think of art and curation as forms of care, and I certainly Mm -hmm. do, that it is a different way of curating a return that is steeped in aesthetic care and fantasy and performative glory. Which is something that we know all about from Homecoming, which that should be its own program. It could be its own program, but it's a great way to sort of wrap the conversation because I think Homecoming is perhaps like the distillation of Beyonce in the purest form because it takes everything that she's done in her whole career, everything that makes her iconic. First of all, like her incredibly virtuosic performance style, which like is in a league of its own Mm -hmm. and the way that it threads her entire discography into each other and into greater black diasporic musical traditions. One of my favorite sections in Homecoming is when she does hold up into bomb bomb, into you don't love me, into countdown, (laughs) into check on it, like in this medley not only tying the last 20 years of her music together thematically and in this particular section, her nods towards Caribbean music across her discography into one another, but then connecting that out into the broader history of Caribbean music by sampling reggae and dancehall artists like Sister Nancy. It's just a brilliant two-minute distillation of so much meaning. It's just incredible. Not only does she have the incredible chops of a dancer, performer, writer, singer, filmmaker, but also from one DJ to another, the way this set is constructed, she also has the mind of an incredible DJ who can thread lots of different rhythm, sound, themes together into something more meaningful than the sum of its parts, which is incredible and not surprising. And she does that repeatedly in terms of also saying, you know, you were shocked by Lemonade. There's a great one also where she does Sorry, Kitty Cat, Me, Myself, and I, all of these kind of like infidelity anthems in one piece.
It's yes. just the most brilliantly executed live performance of all time. And of course, tying in the historically black colleges and universities, yes. the marching bands, the baton twirlers. Yes. It's again, yet another sort of epic scale thing that I think serves as the ultimate career capstone. And she brought out the girls to help really tie the whole thing together. She did. She really leaned into the trope of what it means to reimagine home, which is a trope mm. that we have in Lemonade. It's a trope that we see in Black as King. Homecoming itself is its own trope. I'm thinking about one of the many icons that she invokes throughout her career from actually some of the Sasha Fierce imagery, but also, of course, literally in Dreamgirls, that Diana Ross yes. playing the role of Dorothy at the end of The Wiz and singing the iconic song from The Wiz, Home. Maybe there's a chance for me to go back now that I have some direction. It would sure be nice to be back home where there's love and affection. And we can think of this stage of Beyonce's career as having something to do with being able to build a new home for us and for herself and for her family and for this nation. And you think about the beginning of Lemonade where there's this meditation in the poetry about this home that is not a home. A house is not a home, as Luther would say, mm. right? I tried to make a home out of you, but doors lead to trap doors. A stairway leads to nothing. These tropes are really central to this moment in time for her as an artist and the socio-political statement she's making as a Black feminist about what home can and should be for Black folks, dispossessed people trying to reimagine the universe for the good of us all. Mm, that is incredibly powerful, <laughs> my God. So... We know Beyonce is tier one. We know that she's one of the most important, biggest, most impactful pop stars that has ever existed in the history of recorded music. So that's not up for debate right now. What I'd like to ask you instead as my final question is, what in 50 years when we look back and we're looking back at the history of pop music, what is Beyonce's legacy as a pop star? What will she be remembered for? So many things, but probably the thing I care the most about is that she'll be remembered for having excavated, cared for, and looked after as a steward of the value of Black women mm. in relation to this country and popular music culture. She's a steward of Black women's worth in the history of this country. Wow, that's very well said. And what could be a better legacy for such an incredible artist to leave behind? And I'm moved by this conversation and by all of your wisdom. And thank you so much. I have one last question for you, which is, Absolutely. what is an underrated Beyonce song from this era that we could send oh. the podcast out on? I'm going to go back to Superpower. Mm -hmm. The world is encapsulated in that song. The scale, the magnitude, sonically, the timpani, the duet, the collabo, the tenderness mm. yoked together with the fortitude. It's just gorgeous. All right, so let's go out on superpower. Dr. Daphne Brooks, thank you so, so much for being on the show. Thank you, Louis. Moving forward. A 
All right, so that is part three of our Beyonce episodes in the can. She is obviously, without question, a tier one icon that judgment is rendered. She doesn't need me to render that judgment. My God, she is tier one if there ever was a tier one. So I want to say thank you so, so much to the brilliant Dr. Daphne Brooks for lending her genius to the show. Wow, that was truly one of the most educational and moving experiences I've had making the show. So I want to just say thank you, thank you so much to Dr. Brooks. I also want to say thank you so, so much to Russ Martin for everything he does to make the show happen every week. It's truly incredible and at this point really could not do it without him. I want to tell you guys to follow us on social media at Pop Pantheon Pod and me at DJ XIV. Please rate, review, and subscribe to Pop Pantheon wherever you get your podcasts. Please hop in the Discord chat and be there with us on Thursday night when the Beyonce album drops so that we can kiki about the whole thing. And of course, please come out to Gorgeous Gorgeous on August 12th at Resident. I hope to see you guys there. I hope to meet some of you guys. And until next week's Beyonce episode. <laughs> Have a wonderful life. Bye bye. A subtle power. A tough love. Like a shark. Too much to bear.